0: our prayers of the people. Please respond to God of all mercy with your prayer. Father, thank you that you are a God who saves. We pray for the whole people of God hidden in Jesus and for all people according to their needs. For people around the world who are suffering or celebrating today, would you draw near to each one? God of all mercy. For our national and local leaders, grant them humility and discernment as they make decisions affecting so many. God of all mercy. Amen. For the church in Chicago, would we have eyes to see what is broken and what is beautiful. God of all mercy. Amen. For the students of Wells High School, would they heed your call to find their rest in you. God of all mercy. Amen. For the people of Renewal Church, grant them love for and unity unity with one another. God of all mercy. Hear our for the Painted Door family, would you transform us into Easter people? God of all mercy. Hear our prayer. And for all who come to the feast of Jesus this morning, for the hearing of our ears, rejoicing of our minds, and stillness of our souls, God of all mercy. Hear our prayer. Gracious Father, these are our requests. We trust in your mercy made known through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, friends and family. Uh, If you are new here, um, we've got these little inserts in the back of the chair. Um, We'd like for you guys to be able to fill that out and get to know you guys a little bit, get some information on you. Um, we just got a few announcements. Uh, Immediately after service today, there's a children's ministry leaders uh, training uh, in the older kids' room. So if you're a leader in the children's ministry or you're at least interested In participating, Uh, please join the rest of uh, the leaders in the older kids' room. If you have any questions, you can reach out to Erin Bourne and she can lead you in that direction, or Caitlin. (laughs) Um, Also, uh, April 29th, you're gonna wanna mark this down uh, here at the church following service again, a brief members' meeting. And when I say members' meeting, I mean that if you've been coming for a while, (laughs) you're free to attend also. Um, we're just going to have a brief meeting, uh, kind of give some updates on what's been going on um, at, the, at the church. Also, this is a surprise announcement, May 7th, 7 p.m., here at the church, uh, Pastor Morgan and I um, are co-leading our men's group. Uh, we're restarting it uh, on the weekday, so if you're a guy here and want to connect with other men, May 7th, 7 p.m., uh, here at the church. Okay? Okay. Um, so if you could please just kind of prepare your hearts right now for the reading of the word. Thank you.
2: Scripture reading this morning is 1 Kings seventeen, seventeen through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the child, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth, the word of the Lord.
3: Good morning, Painted Door, welcome. My name is Mark. If you're new, I trust that you have all recovered from your Easter pie comas from last week. Uh, Thanks to all those who brought pie. That's the first time that we've done our Easter pie in potluck form, and it turned out great. It was a great celebration of resurrection last week, and I actually have good news. The celebration continues (laughs) Um, I personally took the liberty of ordering 50 pies that are being hand-delivered into our foyer right now as we speak. I'm kidding. (laughs) I didn't do that. Uh, Nevertheless, we have resurrection, and so celebration is ongoing. Actually, Easter was never meant to be a single day for celebrating, and observing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Easter historically has always been the start of a period known as Tide, which is actually a 50-day season of remembering, recalling to mind, meditating on the new life and new reality that the resurrection of Jesus brought to bear. It starts on Easter Sunday, carries all the way 50 days until Pentecost Sunday, which this year falls on May 20. So we have many weeks still to go of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And it's our intention as a church to continue that Easter resurrection focus throughout that time. Counting Jesus, there are actually nine instances of a person being raised from the dead recorded in the Bible. There's nine times. Last week. We looked at the most famous two of those instances, the raising of Lazarus and also the raising of Jesus. But there are seven more. There are seven other instances, and it so happens that we have seven remaining weeks of the Eastertide season, almost as though someone planned it, for us to look at these cases of resurrection and examine what it is about God that we can glimpse there. Now, it's important to recognize as we begin looking at these instances of resurrection. I mentioned this last week that every instance of someone being raised from the dead in the Bible, other than the instance of Jesus, is not a true or full resurrection. In this sense, when Jesus rose from the dead, he never faced the grave again. When Jesus experienced resurrection, he went through death to the other side. For the other eight persons whose raising from the dead is recorded in scripture, they were in essence backed out of the grave. That is to say, a death still awaited them. A death and true resurrection was still in front of them. And so in that sense, these other eight instances could be better described as resuscitations, truly coming back out of the grave, but still to face the grave one day and still in need of that final and complete defeat of death that is given to us only in the resurrection of Christ. Nevertheless, even though these are only glimpses or pseudo-resurrections, they have in them much for us to glean and glimpse about the character of God, about the nature of God, about what is exactly his plan for death, what exactly is his intention, how he plans to deal with this great enemy called death that is facing all of us, that sits in front of all of us. The truth is that we know God's plan for death is to defeat it and that he has been conspiring to defeat Death, from the moment it entered into the world. From as soon as human beings, as soon as the likes of you and me began our misdeeds, began mistreating each other, began dishonoring God, ignoring God, rejecting the words of God, going our own way, from the very moment that we ushered in this penalty, this curse of death in the world, God has been conspiring to rescue us from it. He's been conspiring not only to rescue us from the curse of death, but to rescue us from the very sort of folly that put us in this predicament, to rescue us from the kind of foolishness, from the kind of self-aggrandizement, from the kind of insistence that we know best for ourselves that actually leads to all the chaos And death and ruin in the world. God has a conspiracy in mind and has been working it out ever since we brought all of that ruin into the world. And today we are going to consider that restoration conspiracy. We're going to glimpse that restoration conspiracy through God's interaction with a prophet named Elijah. And so our story actually begins all the way back in the Old Testament around 900 B.C., about 900 years before the birth of Jesus. The kingdom of Israel, which has been established for some time at this point, has recently been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is in and around Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is separated from Jerusalem and so separated from the center of religious life and worship for the Israelite people, for the Jewish community. They don't have the temple in the northern kingdom. And so the rulers of the northern kingdom are opening themselves up to other forms of religious devotion, to other practices of worship, Indeed, even to other gods, possibly as an effort to replace what has been lost in no longer having access to Jerusalem and the temple therein. And so the ruler of the northern kingdom is a man by the name of Ahab. And Ahab has married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel does not believe in the God of Israel. She does not acknowledge the God of Israel. She very much prefers other gods, Phoenician gods, specifically the gods of Baal and Asherah. And so Jezebel has been inviting in these prophets of other gods to the kingdom of Israel, inviting them to begin leading the children of Israel, leading the people of Israel into these other forms of worship into acknowledging these false gods. And Ahab has capitulated to Jezebel's desires. He's begun to build altars to these other gods, allow these prophets to practice their false worship and to lead the people of the northern kingdom of Israel astray. And so, God sends the prophet Elijah to pronounce judgment on Israel and Ahab. And Elijah comes before Ahab and speaks to this false worship that is happening in the kingdom and announces to Ahab that a terrible drought will be falling on the northern kingdom of Israel, that there will be no rain again until Elijah speaks it. Now the trouble with a drought is that it spares no person from its fury. And so this curse that falls onto the northern kingdom of Israel brings great hunger and thirst onto every person, no matter their allegiance. Even those people in the kingdom who remained full of faith, who continued to acknowledge Yahweh, begin to experience this horrible thirst and hunger that is brought on by this drought. And even Elijah himself, who is the prophet of God, ostensibly was staring in the face of great hunger and great thirst by way of this curse that he had brought on the land or that God had brought on the land through him. So God makes special provision for Elijah. He directs Elijah to a brook flowing with clean water in the region of Cherith, which was east of the River Jordan. And he leads Elijah there so that Elijah might not thirst, that he might continue to have his life sustained. And what's more, God miraculously provides food for Elijah in that place through carrier ravens, as it were birds who bring food to him and minister to him there and so Elijah is sustained in that place held up in life by the provision of God miraculously in the face of this terrible curse that has covered the land and after he has been there for some time God directs him to move on from that place and tells him to move to the city of Zarephath where God tells Elijah that he has made arrangements, that he's actually commanded a widow living in Zarephath to feed Elijah when he arrives in that city. And so Elijah listens to the voice of God and moves on from this brook of Cherith to the city of Zarephath. And the first thing that he sees upon coming to the entrance of the city is this widow that God had spoken of But she is there gathering sticks. And Elijah inquires as to what she is doing. And it turns out that she means to take these sticks and bake them. Because her and her son are so overcome by the pains of hunger that their intention is to fill their bellies with baked sticks if only to experience some marginal relief before they die. If you're familiar at all with areas in the world where there is great famine or drought, this is not all that uncommon. The pain of hunger becomes so overwhelming that people will fill their bellies with mud or sticks or some other such thing just to relieve the agony of it, knowing that ingesting those things will lead to certain death. And so this widow has reached this point of desperation, with her and her son. But Elijah tells her on direction from God to go reach again into the jar where her flour is kept in the kitchen and to go pour again from the jug of oil that she has there. And she listens to Elijah and reaches into the jar of flour and pours oil from the jug. And Elijah promises that the flour and oil therein will last longer than the drought, that God will provide the means to make bread and cakes for her and her son and for Elijah, that God will be the provider in the face of this great hunger, this great thirst. And so the widow and her son are saved. Elijah is nourished and God continues to provide extraordinarily, miraculously in the face of this terrible curse to his people. God makes provision for those whom he would provide for. And some weeks pass. They continue to be nourished miraculously by God in this way. And then the scriptures tell us that the son of this widow, the young boy, suddenly falls terribly ill. And the scriptures tell us that his illness becomes so severe that there is no longer any breath in him. In other words, his illness takes his life, and the boy is lost after having been rescued. And the widow says to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God? "'You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance "'and to cause the death of my son.'" Now, what is happening here in this little story, this strange little story that we are encountering in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings? We have here a widow and a son who've been rescued from starvation, who've been saved miraculously by the power and provision of God. And yet, we see now this widow being fiercely embittered when the death that she had previously resigned herself to comes knocking at the door of her household again. She's no longer resigned to that death. Maybe some of us can relate to this. Have the events of your life ever unfolded in such a way that it seemed as though great blessing and great curse were happening right alongside each other. Great promise and great trouble intermixed in some way. Hard to even discern where one begins and the other ends. They seem to be going together. The best things seem to happen right alongside the worst things. And faith is very confusing in moments like that. It's very confusing. Some of you perhaps know my story or a bit of my story that six months after I became a Christian, six months into receiving new life from Christ, having joy break into my heart in ways that I had not known, having love Overflow in me at the age of 20. Six months into that experience, a doctor told me that I had non Hodgkin's lymphoma, a grapefruit sized tumor growing in my abdomen, and would need to be starting chemotherapy immediately. What have you against me, O Lord? The words of this widow were on my mouth at that time. And you begin to run through these thoughts in your mind. Is it that my sin is too great? Is it that God cannot bless me in the way that He blesses others? I see others coming to faith in the Lord, I see others being provided for, I see others flourishing. And now here I am, a brand new Christian, having placed my life and my confidence in the hands of God for the first time, and cancer is what arrives at my doorstep. That is very confusing, no matter what your level of maturity in the faith. What kind of a God is this? who seems to intermingle, seems to intermix great blessing and great trial or curse at the same time? Can't there simply be some relief, some space where no hardship befalls us, where we just drink deeply of his provision without having to look into the face of death anymore? Have you ever asked or considered or wondered if this is the sort of God that's even worth putting your confidence in. In the face of that challenge, in the face of great tragedy and trial, in the face of these kind of intermingled blessings and curses, has the thought crossed your mind, maybe this isn't a God I should listen to? Maybe this isn't a God worth trusting. Maybe I should take matters into my own hands. Maybe I'm the only one who can be trusted to actually bring about goodness or happiness in my life. Maybe this God is not as good as he claims to be. Elijah took the lifeless boy in his arms and carried him up to an upper room in the house. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. This is an unvarnished picture of relationship with God. Haven't we all prayed like this at some point? Simultaneously shaking our fist at God, and then in desperation crying out to him. Elijah says, you have killed this boy, Lord. You can see the faithlessness in Elijah. He is fed up with this God. Elijah, after all, is the person through whom God has initially brought this great calamity on the people of Israel. It's Elijah's words that have led to this drought in the land. Elijah is saying, why me, God? Why is all of this pain and heartache coming through me? Why all of this curse in my life? Now, ostensibly, here I am, bringing this into the household of this widow. It seems to Elijah that his very presence in this home is leading to the death of this boy. His presence in Israel has led to the drought in Israel. Elijah is faithless. God, are you even good? He calls God a murderer. And then in the very next breath, he cries out for mercy from God. He pleads with God for mercy. I have prayed prayers like this, certainly. Perhaps you have as well. Where you are shaking your fist at God, you are discounting God, you are sure of the cruelty of God, and yet, hoping, pleading, that there may be some kindness in him. Holding these two ideas of God together in some way. Because where else is there to turn? It's desperation that drives us to plead for mercy from God, even when we have discounted him in our mind as not being good. How does God respond to Elijah's Faithless accusation. Resurrection. God brings this child back to life, the scripture tells us. This is the first recorded resuscitation in all of scripture. The boy is revived upon Elijah's prayer. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Hear this. Faith is not something that we can muster up within us. In order to steer ourselves around calamity, faith is something that is gifted to us through the experience of death and resurrection. Faith can't keep us from death and resurrection, faith is given in death and resurrection, faith rises as we walk the road of death and resurrection. It was never meant to steer us around it as though it could. It comes from it. You see that in this story. God provides for Elijah at the brook in Cherith. He provides again for Elijah through this widow in Zarephath. He provides for the widow. He provides for her son he sustains them upholds them gives life upon life and all that there is in the wake of this provision is this same lingering faithlessness that there was at the beginning the moment hardship arises it shows itself this same suspicion God you are not trustworthy You may have provided for me in the past. You may have steered me around death to this point. But now that it is here again knocking at my door, aha, this confirms my suspicions. I cannot trust you to uphold me. I'm thrown back on my own resources to fight for my own survival. God, you're stingy. You're holding out on me. I know better what good would be in my life. And you have again proven yourself not to be trustworthy. That lurking suspicion in our minds that God is stingy when hardship comes, that lurking suspicion that he is somehow withholding good from us, That best we can see what's happening is not good and therefore when I do the calculations, God is not good. That suspicion that I have to turn back to my own resources and fight for my own way and manufacture a life of my own doing. That is the suspicion that has wrought all of the darkness and death on the earth thus far. That is what has gotten us here. It's that faithless belief that it's on me to make my own way. That it's on me to carve out some sort of decent life for myself. And yet from the beginning, God has been conspiring to rescue you and me from that faithless place. From the moment we began to exercise that faithlessness, from the moment we first brought ruin into this garden planet and began to mistreat each other and began to go our own way and began to assume that we would be better at being our own gods than God himself, God has not turned on us in punishment, but instead began to conspire to rescue us from that place, to convince us that he is life and life to the full, the whole project of history is God conspiring to rebirth faith in us, to rebirth trust of him in us, to re-inspire confidence in him in us, to give us that place of true life and rest again. The content of God's restoration conspiracy is death and resurrection. That is to say the means by which he gifts us that faith again, he restores to us that confidence that he is the source of true and everlasting life and goodness again is by taking us through death and resurrection. Taking us around it won't do will say thank you very much and mistrust him again the moment hardship comes. Elijah announces to this woman, your son lives. You can hear faith rising in his soul. The woman responds, now I know that you are indeed a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Faith is the gift that comes by way of death and resurrection. Comes as we see just how faithful God is in the face of death. The shape of God's rescue is sorrow and joy intermixed. The shape of God's conspiracy to rescue us is death, And resurrection. It's sickness and healing. It's suffering and comfort. It's loss and recovery. It's failure and new life. And there's an order to God's rescue death and then resurrection. Jesus said to Lazarus, his sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It is the glory of God to take even the darkness and the death that our faithlessness brought into the world and use it in the demonstration of his faithfulness to us. God triumphs over the death and ruin that our faithlessness has yielded by manifesting his faithfulness through death and resurrection. He makes a mockery of all of the death and carnage that we have brought into the world and demonstrates to us just how trustworthy he is, turning even that for our ultimate good and redemption. Take heart, church. Every calamity, every pain, every dark thing, every excruciating agony, It's not the end of the story. It's the middle of the story. There's an order to God's redemption, death, and then resurrection. C.S. Lewis once wrote, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. For all of our attempts, our faithless attempts, to pretend that darkness reigns, for all of our faithless mistrusting of God, we cannot stamp out the faithfulness and glory of that God. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This glory of God will shine. His light will overcome. Resurrection will triumph over the grave. And as it does over and over again in our lives and ultimately in our deaths and eternal life, faith will rise. God will give us confidence in him again. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, your son lives. And we thank you for the person of Jesus. We thank you for his demonstration of the way home. We thank you for the confidence and faith that can be given as we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, help us to see in him the way in which you are saving us. Give us patience and endurance as we are in the middle of the story. Give us glimpses of death and resurrection. Give us faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Death and resurrection surrounds us It's happening all around us, all the time. And yet, we know the end of the story because God has revealed it to us. That's why we sing. We sing in the middle of that divine conspiracy. That's why we give, because we know that God is in control of it all, that he is sustaining sustaining us, even in the face of his plan to rescue us.